You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Hello, and welcome to the January edition of the JNNP podcast. So, a new year and a new endeavour for JNNP. This is our Impact Commentaries, a series which will look back on past JNNP papers and try to get to the bottom of the impacts they've had, a word which, as editor Matthew Keenan puts it, undergoes more costume changes than Lady Gaga. Matthew's first past publication is Simon Wesley's The Nature of Fatigue, a comparison of chronic post-viral fatigue with neuromuscular and affective disorders. And coming up, he speaks to Simon about this seminal research. Also in this edition, Functional Weakness. John Stone from Edinburgh University tells me about his research on events which occurred to patients 24 hours before onset of the condition. But before all of that, I got Matthew on the phone to say just what we can expect from these impact commentaries. With the new editorial group that uh, started with JNMP in 2010, we wondered how could we emphasise the strengths of the journal. And certainly as editor, it's a great privilege to have an enormous back catalogue of manuscripts dating back to 1920. Many of the original studies in neurological, neurosurgical and psychiatric conditions have been originally published in JNNP. And that's further confirmed by the fact that our half-life for JNNP is the longest of any of the clinical neurosciences journals. So really what, what that's telling us is JNNP is a trailblazer. It's not a follower. And we wanted to emphasize these trailblazing studies. And so in part, we went back and looked at what were the most highly cited manuscripts. And having seen them, we wondered, well, why were they so highly cited? And it's been a great privilege to go back through these manuscripts and be in contact with the original authors and ask them to provide some insight into these manuscripts. Now, some of these manuscripts have been incredibly well cited. For instance, Max Hamilton's manuscript which discussed the rating scale for depression published in 1960, has been cited some 12,500 times, which is really unbelievable. So what we wanted to understand by conversing with the authors of the original studies is how did they approach the study in the first place, how did they put it together, and how did it lead to such high citation counts? Presumably, it meant something in clinical neurosciences. And then with the benefit of hindsight, what sort of lessons and advice could they give to future generations about tackling such problems? Have you gone back to the archive and, and simply picked out the ones with the, the highest citation factors? Is that how you've chosen them or has there been a bit more kind of editorial leeway in there? There has been some more editorial leeway. So we also discussed it amongst ourselves and thought, well, what were the key sort of developments in each of our fields? And then what were the manuscripts that were published in JNMP? So another example of this is Marion Smith's article published in the 1960s looking at motor pathways in motor neurone disease. And in fact, her manuscripts are the first to su- suggest that there was involvement in the frontal lobes in motor neurone disease and her beautiful diagrams of brain involvement in motor neurone disease has now been replicated in a study this year by Martin Turner. And he looks back at her original manuscript and shows that her drawings were beautifully recreated by his functional imaging studies. So it wasn't just purely citation counts, it was also what manuscripts took that field further into another level. We've also gone through manuscripts in the last year or two, the ones that 
seem to have been taken on by readership and, and other clinic, clinician scientists and are appearing to make their mark in the clinical neurosciences. Great, OK, so we're not going to have things just right back from the beginning of JNMP. We're going to have some more recent papers as well. We've got Simon Wesley's paper on chronic fatigue syndrome was the first one that you've picked. What was it about that paper? Why did you choose that as the, the inaugural impact commentary? Well, I think that paper beautifully transcends and crosses the boundaries of neuropsychiatry and clinical neurology. And certainly as a neurologist, we see patients all the time who are complaining of fatigue. What does that fatigue mean? And really, no one had got on top of trying to define fatigue in a neurological context and try to put a measurement on it and try to understand what the basis of that fatigue was. And I think Simon has beautifully brought together simple ingredients He's addressed an important clinical problem. He's taken simple measurements. He's been able to incorporate the key issues of clinical history and examinations. He's come up with a hypothesis and he's tested it and he's taken this forward. And I think that just shows the beauty of trying to address an important clinical problem and the whole importance of clinical research. Fantastic. Well, next we'll, uh, we'll be hearing you chat to Simon about this paper. So look forward to, to reading more of them in the future. Well, Simon, thanks a lot for uh, being part of this impact commentary, which is really reflecting your fantastic manuscript in 1989. <laughs> Thank you. So perhaps we could turn back time and just picture it that you're a senior registrar at the Maudsley and you get this referral saying, please, Simon, can you see this patient? There's nothing wrong with her. Yeah, and, it, and let us know how you approach such a question. Well, I mean, it was actually, I was at the Maudsley, and then I got transferred to uh, Queen Square, the National Hospital for Neurology, because a fellow called Ray Dolan, I don't know what happened to him, but anyway, had been uh, promoted to consultant, and um, so I had to take over his SPR position. Hard to think of Ray ever was a junior doctor, but he was. So I turned up at Queen Square and I wasn't, I've never been, you know, uh, one of those psychiatrists who was going to you know, massively get involved in genes and imaging and things like that. So I was always very clinically orientated. And so that meant that very rapidly I started to get referred um, these patients who the neurologists with uh, every good intention were pretty baffled by, to be honest, and also not that sympathetic to. These were patients who were clearly ill and believed they had a neurological problem. The neurologist originally thought they had two, but couldn't find anything. So these patients started to pile up, and, and um, this was going to be part of my workload because no one else wanted to see them. And, and I just started to get more and more interested in them because they were clearly unwell. They resembled some of the patients that I'd been seeing back down at Kings and the Morsey, but they weren't identical. And the one thing that was obvious was that um, no one had a blind idea of what actually to do with them. And so that's really how it started off. And, and uh, it really was clinical research of a kind that I don't know that people do quite so often these days, but uh, we did it. We had no grant. We had no budget. We had to kind of steal the photocopier in the evening. Um, we had no measures. We had to invent them for ourselves. And we had to find all the patients for ourselves. And, and that was really my introduction to clinical research. And I got kind of hooked on fairly, fairly quickly after that. So there are sort of a range of terminologies for this condition and, and, and they've continued from chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, and as you mentioned in your commentary, yuppie flu. 
What do you make of these conditions now, and, and what did you make of it then? Well, and there were a range of labels even back then. I mean, chronic fatigue syndrome hadn't been invented. Um, that label w- would appear a year, I think, later uh, from the Americans. So they were known as kind of post-viral fatigue, because a lot of them certainly had viral triggers. At least they reported that. And later on, we and others would show that, that, that there was an association. Um, in the vernacular, they were sometimes called ME, although doctors really didn't like that term, particularly at Queen Square. I mean, encephalomyelitis is a very discreet entity, usually fatal, and, and there was no way any card-carrying neurologist would let that word pass their lips. Um, in the papers, it was yuppie flu because of this bias. Um, you know, most of the patients that one read about came from you know, the upper middle classes. They were doctors, nurses, teachers, lawyers, and so on. And indeed, one of, one of the early pieces of epidemiological research we did um, starting a couple of years later we showed that was a misnomer that was just about how patients presented to healthcare systems and when you actually went out into the population it's actually commoner in lower social classes so there are a variety of labels around chronic fatigue syndrome stuck because um, it was acceptable to the journals and doctors it was fairly neutral it was a syndrome it had fatigue it was chronic didn't imply etiology, and really that was quite important in getting professional acceptance, as it still is. Um, and and so, so that was the kind of picture then. And over the next few years, what happened was some of the more unlikely hypotheses started to fall by the wayside, that this was a muscle disease, um, that it was a persistent viral infection, and indeed that it was all completely imaginary, which was another view. Um, so those views started to disappear, and we move towards what we have now, a rather multifactorial model for illness that distinguishes between um, things that, that make it more likely that you'll get this, uh, things that actually bring it on, and things that keep it going. And that model has been reasonably persuasive now for the last decade or so. And of course, it does permit treatment, which none of the other ones did. And in your commentary, and in going back to the original study, you, you, you mentioned that the pattern of fatigue was different and I suppose differentiating this from uh, depression or comorbid depression and, and what may happen in neuromuscular disease. So could you provide a bit of insight in, the, in that regard? Yes, I mean, we set up the study because, I mean, I remember there was a famous headline in a newspaper at the time that said, clinics baffled by mysterious muscle disease. And, you know, that was um, one, one, one of the main ideas actually out there. And it didn't, you know, it just clinically didn't seem plausible to me, not least because so many of the patients had this, uh, very strong complaints. It wasn't just physical fatigue that exhausted them. It was also mental efforts as well. So, you know, doing a, a social security form or a tax return or something like that was just as exhausting as, you know, walking to a bus stop. And even with my limited exposure to pure muscle diseases, that didn't happen. So Queen Square, of course, was full of people with muscle diseases. So we selected those and we compared the patterns of fatigue between the two. And what we showed um, I think pretty decisively, was that the pattern of fatigue could not be explained by muscle disease alone, and that this central fatigability was an inherent part of the illness. Now, we also showed that you got that in depression as well, which is also a central fatigability. For CFS uh, patients, you got that whether or not they had comorbid depression, which a lot of them did. So there was a central pattern of fatigue in chronic fatigue syndrome. We originally thought that, that would be explained by depression alone. That, that certainly was the hypothesis we started out with. Um, but 
in that study and in later studies we did, that really um, couldn't explain all the fatigue, fatigability. It certainly explained part of it, but it couldn't explain all of it. But the view that this was a central fatigue, in other words, something to do you know, with the brain, as it were, um, uh, has persisted ever since then. And I, I really think that if we are ever going to make progress in this illness, it will come through the combination of psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience. Now, you bring up a relatively implausible concept that the manuscript was accepted without revision by <laughs> JNNP. Yes. How, how could this be so? Well, I assume that that would happen every time you uh, wrote a paper. <laughs> I, mean, I genuinely did. I thought, that, I thought that was the norm. And, of course, it has, it has never happened to me since, uh, except for commission stuff. But um, I think because it, it, it was a nice piece of work. It was quite elegant looking back on it. It was important because, you know, clinicians were genuinely baffled by this problem. The way they were looking at it, particularly at Queen Square, just wasn't getting anywhere. And so we came along and we said, well, we, you know, we think that the paradigm that everyone's using is, is wrong on clinical grounds. And of course, it, ma it made sense to clinicians. It, it helped them understand. And plus, in the same year, we also published a, a, an illness model that would lead to treatment. And we started treating patients in the same year with what became known as CBT. So I think it struck a, a chord among neurologists who you know, were seeing a lot of these patients, they weren't uncommon. And this kind of, it was like a light bulb going, oh, maybe, you know, maybe that we're looking at this from the wrong way. And unlike some of the other things, it paved the way to a, a coherent view of treatment. So you've already provided some excellent instruction, but I suppose for clinician researchers, what do you think the message of, of your highly cited paper already is for, for the general readership? Well, I think... I mean, I, I'm passionate now uh, about clinical academic research. Um, I, I believe that it's as valuable as it ever was. And one of my jobs now, and I've become a kind of university bureaucrat, is, you know, developing academic careers for juniors. But I think the point we made was everyone says, you know, oh, I can't do research because we haven't got the money. And actually, you can. And clearly, you know, you can't run a massive multi-center trial of a new drug without a budget. But we did do that without a budget. We did it purely on a clinical observation. It was based on seeing these patients and thinking, well, hang on, we must be able to do better here. And then coming up with the really crucial thing that it only dawned on me as the years came by was that we had a rather good design. You know, we got patients with known neuromuscular disorders, known psychiatric disorders, and then the kind of unknown group. So it was quite a powerful design. And the other thing was looking back on it was it wasn't that difficult. The stats, you know, where they were pretty much slide rule stats, they weren't complicated. And the message was quite simple as well. And uh, I was at the time also working as a journalist writing columns for the Times. I, I did have some appreciation of the need to, whatever else you do, write decent English so people can understand it. Number one, you know, tell a good story, you know, write it well. Number two, you know, don't get upset if you don't get a grant. There's a lot you can do without money, although money helps. To, you, know, you won't get promotion without money. I would mention that point. And finally, you know, clinical problems still can be tackled by clinical research. Well, I think that's a wonderful overview, Simon. You've uh, certainly told a good story, and uh, clearly you've addressed an important clinical 
issue in neurosciences, and that's evidenced by the fact that it's been so incredibly well cited over the years. So all we can say is congratulations. Well, thanks very much. I must say, I was very touched by this and, and, um, and delighted to talk, and uh, nice also to reminisce. Now, getting to grips with functional weakness. With me on the line from the University of Edinburgh is Dr John Stone, who's a consultant neurologist in their Department of Clinical Neurosciences. So good morning, John. Thanks very much for coming on. Morning. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about your study was, was really why um, you decided to do it. In particular, I'm wondering why you wanted to look at symptoms and events so close to the onset of, of functional weakness, those within 24 hours. Well, this paper really arose um, from a study that was designed to look at uh, more distant antecedent factors in patients with functional weakness. So we were studying things like childhood uh, neglect and personality and things like that. But as I was doing these quite long interviews with patients, usually in their own home, I realized there was a pattern emerging, which was very interesting in terms of the events that happened uh, at the moment or, or very close to the moment of onset of weakness. So in some respects, this study, uh, it was a retrospective study in a way, in the sense that it grew from the data. And I was just struck by how many of the patients were describing sudden onset symptoms, often with panic, often with dissociative symptoms, often with pain. And I thought this would be an interesting thing uh, to explore. So how did you go about choosing the, the symptoms and events that you actually looked for? Well, in many senses, they, they actually chose themselves. Um, as I say, it wasn't, uh, a, a prospect, we didn't prospectively decide to study these um, particular symptoms. It's partly based on a lot of literature that I'd read about this topic, particularly literature from the 19th century. Many of the people who were interested in this topic at that time tended to make a distinction between the predisposing factors in terms of their personality and adverse childhood experiences mm. and the mechanism of the symptoms and things that happened at the moment of onset. So, for example... Pierre Janet, uh, Briquet, all in the 19th century, were interested in the idea of shock in particular, either a mental shock or physical shock, um, causing, uh, being intimately related to the onset of the symptom and perhaps helping to understand why certain symptoms develop, such as paralysis. Um, this is a question that had never really been adequately looked at by psychodynamic theory and psychoanalytic theory. Um, Freud called it the mysterious leap from mind to body. And in many senses, it remained mysterious. Psychodynamic theory never really explained why someone should develop a paralysis of their left-hand side, for example. Is there any more recent research that describes the, the risk factors or, or these symptoms and events? So there isn't a great deal of research about these more proximal risk factors a very good paper by Laura Goldstein and John Mellers and colleagues a few years ago, also published in the JNMP, looked at patients with non-epileptic attacks and asked them what symptoms they were actually experiencing just before they uh, lost awareness. And many of those patients were experiencing symptoms of dissociation and uh, panic. Um, and I found this in my own practice as well, that patients with functional neurological symptoms or psychogenic neurological symptoms 
frequently do have these symptoms, although are often very reluctant to describe them. Mm. There's been other work uh, looking at patients developing non-epileptic attacks arising out of general anesthesia, and that's something that I found in this study, that there were some patients whose functional weakness did arise out of general anesthesia. So there's a few studies, but not, not a great number. And in, in your study, you looked at 107 patients with functional weakness mm. who had uh, this disease onset within the last two years um, via interviews, which you yourself went out and did. Could you give us some examples of, of typical experiences? I mean, if there were any typical experiences. There, there isn't a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, hypothesis here, but some of the, one of the cases that are, is in the supplementary data that goes with the paper is a man uh, who was at work talking to his colleagues. He said there wasn't anything particularly unusual about that day or what he was doing. And he described um, symptoms that most people would regard as symptoms of panic. So he had a, a feeling of nausea, a feeling of heavy sensation over his chest, a feeling that someone was standing on his chest and uh, his mouth felt dry, he felt hot and then cold, he was sweating, feelings of the office around him not seeming right mm. spaced out and then at that point he describes his body feeling detached the heaviness that was over his chest was also affecting his left arm and leg and he felt as if his left hand didn't belong to him um, he described having problems breathing and the people around him thought he might be having a heart attack and he really thought that he was going to die so one can see in that particular case lots of symptoms consistent with a panic attack but there, was a left, there were left-sided arm and leg symptoms coming on at the same time, which can both be explained by the heaviness that he was feeling in his chest, which is a common symptom of panic, but that heaviness spreading to the left side, but also feelings of dissociation, as, it was, as he's not feeling attached to his body. Mm. And many of the patients that I, that I met, when they described the onset of their symptoms, you got the feeling that perhaps they were becoming depersonalized because of panic, and that the one side of their body was more depersonalised than the other, if you like, sort of hemi-depersonalisation. Sure. You also looked at um, pain and injury. Could you give me an idea of, of what patients reported with regard to this? Well, there's a whole variety of different symptoms that been re- recorded for a very long time that functional symptoms or hysteria, as it was, was in the 19th century, often arose after minor traumatic injuries. This whole area has a very long and complicated history related to other conditions like shell shock and complex regional pain. These patients are interesting because they're not, they're not presenting uh, with pain syndromes, particularly in the limb, but nonetheless it's an injury at onset, in, usually in the, in the affected leg. So, for example, there was a lady who was running down the road and she sprained her ankle on the curb. The ankle sprain was a bit sore, but it wasn't that bad, and the pain actually only lasted a day or two. But the weakness emerged from that injury, so that leg became weak and remained weak for uh, many months afterwards. Mm. On to your results, what did you find? What were the, the symptoms and events that were statistically most prevalent? And the other thing you looked at was the, the mode of onset, so whether it was a sudden, present or waking or, or more gradual. So did the symptoms and events vary in terms of the mode of onset too? 
Yes, so I think one of the quite basic findings, but something that hadn't really been looked at, was how often does functional weakness arise as a sudden phenomenon versus something gradual. 49 patients, that was 46% of the sample, had uh, sudden onset weakness, a sort of stroke-like onset. And there have been uh, a series of patients reported who present to and and are admitted to stroke units. So we knew that this symptom could happen suddenly. Uh, About one in six had symptoms coming on on waking, so it was a bit hard to know when the onset was. The nature of this condition, one could say that perhaps is sudden onset as well. And then the rest had a more gradual onset, often in the context of an illness with fatigue or pain, and often with a sense that they were evolving, so a feeling that one side of the body was becoming more tired or more painful than the other side. What was also striking was um, there were a range of other physiological and pathophysiological triggers uh, that potentially uh, were relevant to symptom onset in this patient group a group of eight patients who gave a history that was very compatible with migraine, with aura. And what seemed to have happened was that they had um, a typical migraine and they developed some unilateral uh, sensory symptoms and a bit of heaviness that patients often do with migraine. But that, that the weakness had lasted much longer than you'd expect for a a normal migraine. So these were patients with weakness lasting for weeks or even months after the onset of the migraine. And it's interesting to wonder in those patients whether a migraine symptom experienced, particularly if the patient's anxious and perhaps never had it before, as was the case with some of them, the patient pays a lot of attention to the symptom, whether these things could conspire to trigger functional weakness. It seems quite a plausible hypothesis. This is something that's been looked at and reported on one previous occasion, um, but uh, again, not much attention can pay to that. Mm. There were some other interesting triggers as well. There were some patients who developed their functional weakness after a non-epileptic attack. And if you go back to the 19th century literature, this was actually a very well-recognized uh, uh, mode of onset of patients with what was called then hysterical paralysis, um, and it was regarded as, as quite typical. But again, it's not something that's been recorded for a very long time. There were some patients who only noticed their weakness when another health professional uh, noticed it first. So patients who were seen by a physiotherapist or examined by a doctor found one arm or leg was weaker than the other, and then the patient developed the symptom. And that's interesting in terms of the way in which patients' attention and expectations appear to be very relevant to the maintenance and onset of these symptoms. A decent slice, 19% of your patients, um, didn't have any of the, the factors that you were looking for. What, what do you make of this? There's likely to be other factors that are relevant. Um, it wasn't an a priori hypothesis, so it may be that patients early on in the study I wasn't asking the right questions. I suspect that there are other things that we, we've yet to discover about um, the way that these symptoms come on and it may be in some patients that the symptoms do just arise completely spontaneously. Is there anything else that you'd like to to say about the study that particularly struck you from doing it? From a neurologist's perspective the conception of these symptoms as a purely psychological problem which caused by recent life events or adverse childhood experience doesn't really provide a satisfying explanation about why patients should be 
for example, weak down one side of their body. I think if we separate out uh, etiology and mechanism, the etiology is asking why the symptom might be there, what the soil, if you like, of the problem is, from the mechanism, which is really asking how the symptoms are arising and what seed, if you like, in that soil could be uh, causing the symptoms. I think this is something that could make neurologists potentially more, more interested again in their patients. Most importantly, I think um, if neurologists feel they're starting to understand the mechanisms of these symptoms in a clinical way, then they can use that to explain back the symptoms to the patients. And in my own practice, I've found it very helpful to do that, to, to be able to explain to patients not, not necessarily why they have a vulnerability to symptoms in general, which is often complicated and varies hugely between patients, but to be able to explain the mechanism of, for that individual patient and why they might have developed uh, weakness down one side of their body. And I think patients in turn find that helpful to have a doctor attempting to explain the mechanism without necessarily jumping to blame all kinds of uh, previous psychological vulnerabilities. Great. Well, that sounds like a very good note to end on. So thanks very much for coming on and telling us more about your research. Thank you. Both John's paper and Simon's commentary are up online at jnmp.bmj.com. And don't forget our blogs and Twitter feeds for more from the journal. Links to those are on the homepage. That's all for this month. In next month's edition, we'll be looking at the impact of a healthy lifestyle on mortality after stroke. So come back then. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.